Hey, I'm Daryl Etherington, and you're here listening to Found. I'm here with my co-host and also my personal bodyguard. Jordan Crook, here keeping Daryl safe since 2010. That's right. It's very pertinent to today's discussion and today's mm, episode indeed. of Found, the podcast in which me and Jordan talk to a different founder every week about their business, about their startup, about their startup life, and everything that is involved in that. This week... We're joined by Corey Siskind, who is the sole founder and CEO of Base Operations. Jordan, what did you think about our chat with Corey and Base Operations? I thought it was really good. I mean, once you've like kind of gotten into the nitty gritty of it, I think it's really interesting. We think of like physical security, like whatever street level security as like mm-hmm. this thing that has just been the same forever, essentially. Right. Or like maybe it's something we don't think about at all. Right. But the idea of like applying technology and data science to that is very interesting. And I think she's super smart in the way that she's kind of commercialized that technology as well. So that was really interesting. Yeah. I didn't realize how much it resembles or could possibly follow the same path as like the modernization of like the intelligence community right like sort of like how spycraft has gone from a game of like just kind of like being very observant and having a network of people who are very observant who then like talk to each other there's all kinds of technology now at your disposal that you can use and physical security for large corporations is this type of intelligence operation right Mm -hmm. just for a very specific purpose but yeah, it's super cool to hear about her and her experience learning about like, oh, this is something that absolutely is in the Stone Age relative to other things that have benefited from technology. And then going out without a technical background and finding the team and getting the expertise to to make Insane. her idea a reality. Right? Yeah. She's also cool. Like I would totally grab a beer with Corey. Also super cool. Like yeah. she's just cool people. So So enjoy. I think you guys are gonna like this one. Yeah. All right. Thanks for joining us, Corey. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. Let's talk about you and also (laughs) Base Operations, your company. We could start there. You want to give us a a quick overview of the elevator pitch of what Base Operations does? Sure thing. So I'm Corey Siskin. I'm the founder and CEO of Base Operations. And Base Operations is a threat analytics platform for enterprise security departments. Our technology aggregates billions of threat data points around the world into sophisticated visualizations. And we help companies do three main things. So duty of care, which is maintaining the safety of their employees, business continuity, which is ensuring smooth daily operations, and product security. So making sure the production, manufacturing, and distribution of products is is secure around the world. We work with big Fortune 500 multinationals like Moderna and Electronic Arts. Whoa. Okay. I don't know. I don't know if we talked about those last time that we chatted because we chatted for an article previously, but I don't know if Moderna came up during that conversation. Oh, well, we should definitely talk about that because that is, uh, (laughs) yeah, public. We just made a, we just published a case study on it. Oh, congratulations! Thank you very much. Yeah. So that was, we've been working with them for several months. um, And obviously it's like, you know, a a wild time to work at Moderna and, and a really interesting time to help them do what they need to do to get their vaccine, you know, produced and and distributed around the world. Yeah. So how did you decide, I want to be the person who's responsible for the very, like, amazing, world-changing, significant things that other companies are doing? 
through by proxy. <laughs> that seems like a lot to take on. Well, to be clear, I mean, they produce, they invented and produced the vaccine, which is like the, the true right. amazing, amazing part of their story. But what base operations does, you know, like I mentioned, is in this big complicated world with rising catastrophic events between, you know, pandemics, protests, global warming, all sorts of things that interrupt the operations of business. How can we help companies better interpret and understand and respond to the physical world so that they can keep their people safe and operations running and their their vaccines secure, their other products secure around the world? Yeah, that's I mean, it's funny because it's I mean, hopefully it's the thing that we interact with most, the physical world. But it's something that I think people forget about or is is relatively in, invisible compared to things like internet like cybersecurity right so because you think about that all the time we think about data security but we don't think about our our bodies which are very vulnerable walking around or our stuff like the 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 houses that shelter us like the buildings that shelter us like those things are all massively vulnerable to all kinds of things yeah. but yeah it seems to go unnoticed but how did you how did you get interested in that to begin with yeah well i think just you know one response to that is i think it's because we don't think of that as very tech savvy or like it's not it doesn't live in the world of vc it's mm. very like you know, guns, gates, guards. That's how people traditionally right. think about enterprise security. It's like your alarm system. Uh, even that is like sexier than a lot of the things that are associated with physical security. But it is so important. And and I think of physical security as like 15 years behind cybersecurity at least. But I think there is more movement to, especially with the events of 2020, like, you know, the physical world matters and how do we understand it better and, and anticipate threats instead of just reacting to them. That's my experience with like a lot of like physical plant security is it's it's someone you see and you can and it's like we hired this person and they're going to watch out and then they'll do their best to kind of protect you. Right. And maybe there's a lot more going on behind the scenes, but I don't get the impression that there is a lot of the time. I think your impression's correct. It's like it's a really undisrupted. I mean, you know, to use a cliche term, but there's not a lot of technology in this space. So that's why you wanted to go out because <laughs> there was an opportunity there. But how did you come to that realization or, or that conclusion? So, I mean, that's sort of going into the founder story, but um, yeah. my, I never envisioned being in the startup world, really. Like I, I grew up in San Francisco, but it was not on my radar. Like I thought the coolest job in the world would be to go work at the UN or, you know, go be in the state department. And so Pretty soon after graduating undergrad, I really started my career. Um, I moved to Mexico City and worked for a security uh, and risk management consulting firm, helping them help companies enter emerging markets and deal with the complexities of operating environments with really high crime rates, high corruption rates. Like I was literally, you know, following cartel movements and advising companies on, you know, where to build a pipeline in the north of Mexico or how to interact with. You know, if you're going to be in a certain area, like how do you interact with the Sinaloa cartel versus the Zetas cartel to keep your people safe? Like all that, you know, that's sort of interacting with the physical world. But it was a very antiquated, you know, it, it's sort of um, a methodology that was developed in the 1970s around like kidnap and ransom policies. It's it's just like an expert model where you have consultants based all around the world that say like, you know, my guy on the ground says that this area is dangerous and this isn't. So you should do, you know, build your office here and not there, but like really unscientific, you know, not leveraging data science, not leveraging natural language processing, like any, a lot of the other, you know, technologies that regular software platforms leverage. So 
that was sort of the first moment seeing that, like seeing how interesting and important that work was, but how there was so little technology helping people do it better. That was sort of the moment where I was like, hmm, this could this could be something. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like old school spycraft when you say it mm-hmm. that way, right? Like, yeah. yeah, I heard cartel and I'm like, what? what? <laughs> yeah, cartel is not. I'm sure a lot of VCs aren't used to hearing like cartel come up in pitch meetings. But yeah, that's sort of the no. where this was born. They hear mafia, but only in the context of the <laughs> <laughs> somewhat problematic use of it as like PayPal mafia yeah. stuff. Yeah. Do you think that like the spice of it all is like really attractive to investors who like often hear a lot of it like oh i'm going to solve problems in the construction industry you know and they're like okay cool like it's gonna make me a lot of money but i'm not necessarily enthralled whereas you're like so the cartel and the mafia are hanging out right like that they're like hey this is just like the books i read on the plane you know like it's kind of a stupid question but i'm just no, that's it piques funny, my interest, i mean you know i think it's the opposite of that because mm. they it's like not their wheelhouse. Like you didn't say the buzzword of the year, which is, you know, what, whatever it is, like crypto, whatever. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And so, and they're like, okay, so that's potentially interesting to meet you at a cocktail party, but like, it's not what we invest in. I don't know the market. So yeah, I would, I would say it's more of a, um, a turnoff than anything. Yeah. But that is an interesting angle. Cause I didn't think of that, Jordan, when we talked about this before, I wasn't like, but you know, I will, I will say there's something about that that I think does appeal to a certain class of investor. Maybe not the ones that Corey has selected. (laughs) I would say uh, some of our investors are veterans and have Mm. served in some way, or they've been in the intelligence community. So they're like familiar with the need for this. It's a, minority of our investors, Mm. but there is like a growing class of secure tech investors that are looking beyond just cybersecurity. Yeah. I mean, I imagine it's a category that's growing just because as like you talked about, like in 2020, we saw a lot of our assumptions about it were kind of pulled out. It's kind of like what happened in the healthcare industry and that like these things happen all the time and there's always a need for them, but they happen in sort of like clusters in like disparate places here and there. And then you need an event like COVID, like whatever, to to remind people like, oh, right, there's an ever-present persistent need for this. And sometimes it can rise to a global scale, yeah. but it's always happening. It's just usually background for most people and not like in their face, right? Yeah. So the pandemic was a real challenge for us because travel security was a big part of our value proposition in the market. Mm. So in that way, it was bad and we had to pivot really quickly to, you know, build out our supply chain security, other like other services that we offer. But it was a positive for us. I mean, I I don't want to call a pandemic a positive, but like it it brought enterprise security to the forefront in terms of, you know, now top executives think like, what was this formerly sleepy department doing? And how can it how can we keep our people safe, which is always number one, like, and how can we keep things going in a world in which we have, you know, more and more disruptive events. Yeah. So what what is the technology you apply? Like, I am curious about that, right? So we talked about how before it was kind of like a whisper network thing or like, yeah. you know, I'll call my guy and he'll talk to his guys and then we'll figure it out. But what is the changed model and how can technology be brought to bear to like make it better? Yeah, for sure. And we actually, so the technology behind what we do, we actually just received our, our first patent on um, a couple of weeks ago. So we're excited about that. Essentially, what we do is aggregate information from multiple sources with the understanding that no single source of threat data 
is entirely reliable. So we have a model that pulls information from government partnerships, crowdsourced information, and local news. With government data, we have a whole methodology around how to do requests for information to get really hard to reach data sets, how to normalize really unwieldy data sets. So there's kind of boring data science stuff, but like, you know, specific to to government. Um, With partnerships, we work with NGOs, universities, and then for crowdsource reports, we have partnerships with local social media. So for example, a shot spotter app in Sao Paulo that lets us know, you know, what's what's going on there Mm. as an example, and then mining local news. And uh, that's huge for us too. Wow, cool. Yeah, like you mentioned normalizing sort of government data. So does that mean like essentially assigning it like a trustworthiness score or is that an oversimplification? That's part of it. But also like if you can just think of the complexity of like thousands of different police departments that all categorize crime in totally different ways. Right. How can we take that like billions of data points and categorize totally different ways into a usable format for companies to make a decision? Like, yeah. okay, all this, all this data, but tell me like there's, you know, 18 ATMs that we have in the city that are experiencing a rise in crime. Therefore, we should put a new camera there or a security guard, you know, whatever it is, optimizing security operations by making sense of all this noisy data, essentially. Yeah, because it's highly localized, but you need to find a way to make it relevant at a global level, which must be quite challenging, right? Like that alone. It is really challenging data science question. Like, so there's relativity across cities. Like how does Tokyo compared to Mexico City or Johannesburg. And then, okay, but then the big boss says, like, we're building an office in X location. You tell us where it's safe. So, like, then you've got to look at relativity within a city or within a neighborhood. So helping people make sense of that data. I was just wondering, do you have, like, cool stories about, like, a danger that was afoot with your (laughs) clients? And like You're looking for spy stories, aren't you? I I mean, she got me. I didn't start this. I didn't start this cycle in my own mind. You guys did, and now this is where I'm at, and I have a thirst. Stories specifically from our customers or stories that, like, inspired me to get into this business? Both, either. Hit me with a good story. Okay. Well, first of all, I'll tell you the latter, a story that like helped me realize this was a problem. So, you know, first working in this industry, I was, I realized, you know, not, not very tech savvy. There's potentially an opportunity here, but I'm not like, I wasn't ready to go start a company off of that just feeling. So I was a consultant for two years after that, still based in Latin America and traveling all around, you know, would get a project in Guatemala or in, you know, wherever. I became the end consumer of of base operations, of what base operations, you know, would have been. And so I was on a project in Guatemala. I was there for three months and a taxi full of my colleagues was actually like, they just, they took a taxi from the hotel, which should have been safe, but they didn't know where they were going. Nobody was prepped to be in Guatemala City, even though we were a Mexico City-based team, like you think we'd be risk aware, but we didn't have the specifics to Guatemala City and no one gave us any information about what to expect. So this taxi with my colleagues was stopped by an armed gunman for going through the wrong neighborhood. Like they're, you know, all the laptops, phones, everything stolen. But also, you know, more important is just the trauma of going through that experience. And most people in that taxi left the company within a year. So, you know, the the long-term ramifications for companies of not taking care of your people, just like kind of sending them into environments where they don't know what, you know, their their surroundings are and how they should behave can be really dangerous for, you know, 
your your property, but also your people and and retention. Yeah, that's that's scary. Because I mean, that is scary. I'm trying to think of what we get. This is. Are you talking about us? <laughs> I think it's fine. Yeah. It's not going to get us in trouble. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure it will. But, no, no, it's fine. When we do the thing, we like book through concur or whatever, and then we get like a little. Um, a little message like, oh, by the way, I always get them for the United States now, actually, because yeah, so for, for a while here. I did. <laughs> During your unfortunate Trump years, there was like a lot of like the messages would just be like, oh, there's a danger to to travel to the U.S. for whatever. I don't even remember what the specific message was, but that's the sum of it. Right. And it's a little paragraph and you kind of like click it out and then you're on your way. And that's that's the extent. But it depends where you're going. Oh, do they do more? Yeah, like, so I think that there was more when we went to places in the Middle East. Like, there was more going to Israel, for sure. How to register with the State Department, for example, so that, like, the State Department also knows where you are, et cetera. And we have, like, some disaster slash, like, mass shooting stuff where we get, like, text messages and things like that. Comparatively, like, my dad works for PepsiCo, and he travels a ton, and he gets like full sweet personal security for like half of the places well, he's that also he goes. important unlike us <laughs> he's much more important yeah like <laughs> the ransom is very different there what he's probably getting is what's called executive protection which is like armed vehicles like bodyguards maybe the whole the whole deal if he's traveling potentially in emerging markets what you guys are getting is technically like the state of the art in this industry right now it's like a just a paragraph that's rewritten maybe once every five years. Uh, it's not dynamic. It's not, it's still based on some expert, probably like some one person mm. in my case, like a 23 year old who's just arrived in this country that's written this for you. And so it's kind of helpful. Most people don't read it. Most people don't, you know, pay attention. But you get the feeling that it's static always. Like even static. if you do get a sit down in a seminar, you're like, oh, you, you, figured this out like the SOP like five years ago and then you just set it and then you'll revisit yep. it whenever right but, yeah and then it just automatically shoots out and so yeah. like well it doesn't do anything like I don't feel safer right actually registering with the state department is like a nice placebo effect I'm like <laughs> the government knows that I'm here <laughs> they're not going to do anything about it but they know <laughs> I think Jordan you use a word you said it's scary to think about and like I, I really try and not scare people. And like, that's, I, I try not to make this about being afraid. It's more like, we want to help. You're going to do this thing anyway. Companies are going to operate globally and they should. And there's so many exciting markets around the world. So the company really comes from a place of like love for these markets. Like we want you to expand. We want you to send people here because there's so much opportunity and potential. How do you do that safely? You know, knowing that risks, exists like how do you make smart choices not like make no choices you know we don't want you to like just stay in your hotel and like be terrified right. does that make sense yeah well and like psychologically too like uh, as a sales tactic like no one like you think about this in like relationships friendships like people you manage through work like anything that you're like fear is the motivator it tends to like go poorly right like yeah. right. as a starting place so you could see how it would be easy for you to be like look at these scary things that happened you know yeah, what i mean yeah. like that's like how you sell insurance like, right it's like the worst thing is going to happen avoid it right yeah but, right and it's easy to motivate it, it like fear is an easy motivator so it's like kind of like this corner cutting moment that you could do but i don't think that like long term clearly it, it 
won't pay off. So Yeah. Or we like to think about it like a strategic advantage. Last week, we had our, our first in-person meeting with our team and our one of our advisors called in and he's the chief security officer of Boston Scientific. And he, the way he was explaining it is, you know, he views his job like a strategic advantage within the company. So if he can operate in Lebanon when other companies are, you know, unwilling to go to a market like that, they have a strategic advantage because maybe they're like accessing some, you know, primary material faster or their distribution network is better in some some way because they can enter that market because they've figured out a smart way to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great because it's not just like risk risk mitigation or like ticking a box for compliance reasons, right? It's like, no, 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 this enables a whole new part of your business that maybe wasn't possible before, right? Absolutely. If you're listening to Found, you're probably already super interested in startups and the overall startup ecosystem. So we've got a great deal for you. We're going to offer you 50% off either a one-year or a two-year subscription to Extra Crunch. Extra Crunch is TechCrunch's premium product offering. And when you go there, you'll get deep dive interviews with some of the top founders in the industry. You'll get market maps on specific verticals and some of the most exciting areas of growth in startup land. You'll also get uh, surveys of some of the top VCs in different areas, including different geographies. So you can subscribe to Extra Crunch at extracrunch.com. That's probably the easiest way. Or if you're already on TechCrunch, follow the links for Extra Crunch and you'll get a prompt to subscribe and then just enter that code that's found, the name of this podcast, during checkout and you'll get 50% off on either a one-year or a two-year subscription. You mentioned one thing that I wanted to go back to in terms of like the founding journey, but like you said, you know, you weren't very technical, like you realized this was a thing. So as a non-technical founder or a less technical founder, like how did you then get from that point to the point of like, this requires a technical solution and I'm going to find the right people to be able to do that? Yeah. Well, MIT is a great place to do that. So (laughs) when I came back to the US, I spent three years in Cambridge um, and I did a dual degree, like a a public policy degree at at Harvard and an MBA at MIT. And being in the Cambridge ecosystem for three years was just like the perfect little bubble to Mm. take an idea and experiment with it and partner up with people that are way smarter than I am on like, you know, how we could do this technically, build an MVP, try it out in the market. So it was really, you know, those three years of getting to polish this idea that turned it from a hypothesis from someone that had lived a problem to like a company that had raised investment by graduation. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, that's like, a better advertisement for an MBA than any other, like, (laughs) (laughs) right? Like go do it, but do it at a good place where there's a lot of smart, (laughs) technical connected people around. Well, that's the reason MIT started a business school. Like there's this newer business school, but they started it because all this great technology was coming out of the engineering programs. And then it was just being sold off or like no one was commercializing it. Yeah. So that's why. I don't know why that makes me giggle. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, uh, yeah, yeah. We had a previous episode and I mean, I talk to NASA scientists all the time and you're kind of like, I just, I want to to take advantage of you. If you could just put this in a spreadsheet and throw some numbers (laughs) in there, we could kick some ass, bro. Exactly. Exactly. And we have no respect on campus. The MBAs are like, you know, the bottom (laughs) of the barrel. It's so funny, too. You could just like take a short drive and head over to HBS and be like, (laughs) you get lots of attention. That's true. 
Jordan mentioned investors, but what about that part of it? Like, what about going to talk to them? I mean, we talked about it earlier, but like when you were talking to them and it sounds like a lot of people were like, well, I just don't love it. it sounds super mm. interesting, but like not something I have any expertise or insight into at all. So like, how did you manage that? And how did you convince people to kind of come on board? So I think it's a process of having a good list, like understanding who might even care about this and going after them. And then if people are uncomfortable and like with the market and they don't think they can get there, getting to a no quickly so you can move on with your time, basically. But we, we put together a group of people that are interested in different parts of what we do. So base operations was really strong in Latin America. Like that was the first market that we really built out in terms of our coverage. So we've got investors that focus on developing markets and specifically Latin America. We've got some that focus on social impact, some that focus on security and our veterans. So different investors that we found relate to different parts of the business. And that was all homework? Like you just went out and found these people or was it kind of like word of mouth or how did that go? Homework, networking. I mean, like I feel really lucky as much as we were joking about MBAs, like coming out of an MBA and doing some, we did tech stars, like that puts you in a good position to have those conversations. So while fundraising really sucks for many reasons, um, it's also like, this was a process of just like dating and finding the right people for us. How many no's did you have to go through to get your (laughs) yeses? A lot. Um, (laughs) I don't have a number actually, but it's, you know, like, especially early on. So for, we did a pre-seed and then a seed. The pre-seed was a fair amount, but I, like, I was so, maybe I shouldn't even say this, but like, I was so surprised anyone would say yes at all at a certain point. <laughs> it's that fine. I was they just already like, said yes. You don't yeah. need to worry about it. <laughs> yeah. That I was like one yes for me. Like I'm, I get a lot of no's can roll off my back. And if I get a yes, that powers me forward. So it was okay. Yeah, I mean, you seem in general like a fairly uh, resilient person who is uh, energized when things go well, right? So, yeah, yeah. yeah. good skill to have. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's fair. Sales, on the other hand, I think is a lot harder. Like yeah. with with fundraising, you have leverage. Like you, you know, you want people's, you want their investment, you want to work with them, you want their networks, but you only will take so much capital. So, like inherently, there's it's resource yes. limited. There's some scarcity. Yeah. Yeah. And they want some of what you have too, right? Like they're always, they got FOMO. That's the one good thing that you got going for you, right? Right. Whereas with sales, you can't exactly say like, buy it now or else I won't sell it to you. You have to say like, (laughs) I'll sell it to you always and forever, you know? Yeah. It's off the table. Try that though. Like that could be innovative. Like one time only, take it or leave it. Yeah. I think people see through that pretty quickly. But if you, sales, I feel like is more about building genuine relationships and understanding people's problems and figuring out whether your tool is a solution for them rather than saying, buy now or you can't have it. <laughs> <Later."> <laughs> That's a, I mean, as fun as that would be. That's a nice take, though. I like I like the way you think yeah. about sales. I feel like yeah. in my mind, sales is just like this grimy thing. Well, it's it all depends on how you... We, we often interact with it on the buyer side, right? Like me and Jordan specifically get a lot of inbound from like people trying to sell TechCrunch various solutions, oh, right? That. So yeah, I think it's it can be tough to see through that. I've also have really pleasant ones. I bought some PR software actually for a previous client of mine. And I was like, this is great. You, they, and they did exactly what you're talking about, right? It was like, so what is your actual problem? 
let's get on the phone and talk about it. Oh, our thing actually is good for this part of that. And so here it is, right? So did you actually do like sales for your startup personally? And is it uh, like... Are you a good salesperson? <laughs> you seem like it for what it's worth on surface. I'm ready to buy it. Do we? Need <laughs> yeah, no. Can you sign me up? How much? We, we have no yeah. purchasing power. <laughs> we have a good parent company. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I do, I'm very active in the in the sales process. I mean, you early stage companies, obviously, you do everything. So like, yeah. you know, I was product manager, I, everything except engineering, like deep engineering, but customer success, product management, sales. So I I work with others that are seasoned and know more in all of those parts, but. Yeah, I mean, sales can be like soul crushing, but when you find a company that has real problems and you can and you've invented this thing that can really help them, and that was the case with Moderna. So Moderna was, you know, tiny security department. Like they were a small team on one floor of one building in Cambridge. You know, wow. before before the pandemic, and their security team was super limited, and they all of a sudden had to source materials from all around the world figure out where to manufacture this thing, where to distribute it and like how to secure each node of that and like how much product theft to anticipate. And like working with them on that was, I mean, it was great because we felt like we were uniquely, we were the only ones in the market that could actually help them do what they needed to do. So sometimes it's really rewarding. Yeah. At that scale and like with that level of dynamism, right? Because that's like a crazy, I mean, just for them to be like before this, we weren't doing really anything that anybody cared about at all in sort of the general public. And now we have to do all this stuff and we have to transport it and people want it very, very badly. And there, yeah. I have to imagine would be like a very lucrative black market around it. Definitely. And and like pharmaceuticals in general, obviously, yeah. you know, they, yeah. they have to be really careful with product security and making sure that, you know. It's not stolen off the trucks. But yeah, I f so Dean Garibo is the head of security there. And I feel like it was a real partnership. Like, you know, we were helping them secure different nodes of their supply chain and they're, you know, helping us develop the product and build, giving a lot of feedback and, and helping us build in the right direction. Yeah. And you come out of it with a, like a very robust competency, about, like around pharmaceutical transportation and operations, right? Which yeah. is like huge, huge benefit to have now because... That, I mean, yeah, the pandemic is waning kind of in like Western countries or whatever, but it's it's not a single, it's not a one-off thing. Like it's going to be a continued persistent need, right? And especially when we see all the stuff that's coming out of it, like Moderna's technology is so applicable to so many other things. So I'm, I don't know, you know, what the terms of the contract are or anything, but that seems like a great long-term relationship to have, right? Yeah. Well, we, and definitely like, I mean, they've been fantastic and we're starting to work with other life sciences companies as well, because it's a real match between like what we offer and what they need. Yeah. So like that, that was the other part of the sales process. Like with them, it was probably like, we just have a panic need, an urgent need for something, right? Like some kind of modernization, but if you're going to a legacy organization, is it trickier? Cause they're just like, well, you know what we got works like the whisper network works, the big tough guys who are ex seals. That's fine. Like that's all we need. Right. It's kind of like fundraising in that if you're talking to a customer and you quickly identify, they're like a not right now customer. Like they just don't, they don't get why they can't just call their guy on the ground and he'll give them all the information they need to know, then maybe we'll work with them later, but like they're not a early adopter of base right. operations, right? right? So we we move to companies that are more interested in 
taking their security department and making it more data driven, you know, maybe they don't know what that looks like, but they like, you know, intrinsically know that like they have to keep up with the other departments in the rest of the company that are increasingly run by, you know, leveraging software and technology to do their jobs better. So some legacy, like big legacy companies are like that, others aren't, but we've found that people are pretty receptive. Like it's pretty easy for us to schedule meetings for people to at least check it out because what we're doing is really different. Yeah. And who, who are you convincing then in, within the area? Is it the chief like security officers or like the infrastructure officers, security officers? Like who is your buyer, I guess? Yeah, it typically goes up to the chief security officer, depending on how this department is structured. But it could also be, you know, the VP of threat intelligence, depending on how big the company is, travel security, sometimes supply chain security, event security, executive protection, tra- you know, so someone like that. And they and they know they've seen it. And they're like, Oh, wow. Okay. Like, I, I realize what this data could do, like, yeah. once put to use. I do want to touch back, this is jumping around all over the place. But I'm so curious about your experience, like right in the field out of school, right? Like in Mexico, like, what was that like for you? You mentioned in passing, like, oh, like 23 year old comes over and you like, was that your personal experience? Was it like, wait a minute, what am I doing? Yeah, yeah. Well, that seems oddly specific. Like I I was definitely (laughs) suspect of that. Yeah. I mean, that is, that's the status quo of the industry now. And it wasn't made up. I mean, that was me. I was 23 years old. I had pretty good Spanish, but I was like reading blogs, narco blogs, basically with, and like, you know, Twitter accounts following what was happening and like the, the, you know, trends that were changing in in different cities, writing report or briefing an executive from a multinational that was going to open an office in Mexico on where they should build their office or where they should build a pipeline. That was a common one working with like gas pipeline companies. And I was like, this is such a big decision. And I just got here. And I'm, <laughs> you know, um, this can't be right. And what I'm doing, like spending three hours reading blogs and, you know, looking at like hyper local news about this kind of stuff. You know, I, I was like an early machine learning algorithm, right? Like I'm right. reading all these news articles, but I have inherent biases, like how this information is getting to me is not representative. Like, so I I just, I was like, this can't be it. Like we can do better than this. Right. So did you ever pick the wrong spot for a pipeline? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. You're putting me on the spot there. I mean, well, one of the weird things about being a consultant is like you give the advice and then you're gone, right? Yeah. yeah. No, it actually happens. One of the beauties of being a consultant. (laughs) (laughs) I, I don't know, but I mean, I did like, Physical security risks are real, right? Like I wasn't on the kidnapping and ransom negotiation team, but like that was part of what that company did is when executives get kidnapped, like negotiating that. So the stakes are high. What about your your tools like and, and data sources? Because like I cover a lot of space technology, right? And the Earth observation stuff is getting very detailed, very frequent, very high resolution, and also different spectrums, right? So like the, you can actually get tons more information than we previously ever had access to, either because of technology or because of laws. Like, are you integrating that kind of information as well as the other sources you mentioned? In terms of geospatial and temporal representation, we're always trying to go as granular as possible on the geospatial side. So for most of the cities that we cover, we can actually tell you about risk down to the street corner and latitude, wow. longitude. There are others where it's more 
neighborhood based or like a couple block radius or something like that. But if we have, you know, really good data, like we do in many cities, we can do it down to the latitude longitude. Temporal is really interesting. And speaking to Jordan's point earlier, and like not scaring Jordan when she travels, a lot of places, we think there's a high risk profile, but we have no idea how it changes over during the day, right? Or throughout different times. So if you're going to Mexico City, and you're driving around during the day, your chances of something happening are really different than if you're driving around at night or mm-hmm. in a certain area. So being able to look at how the risk profile changes over time is is also something that we offer in base operations and is really interesting to look at trends over at like really precise geography and over time. Now, all this also sounds like stuff that like I would like to have access to as a consumer. Is that like something you ever considered doing? Or, I mean, I know it's also been, there have been experiments with it and it it has ended up striking people as problematic because it's like, oh, maybe you're like being discriminatory against a specific demographic or something, right? But like, what about the consumer market? Have you thought about it at all? Is it not of interest? Yeah, so the original idea for the company was that we would have a version for citizens of the countries that we were covering. And we actually built that and tested it as an early stage startup. Like you, I learned, as I learned, you can't do a mil, you can't have like four different products. You really right. have to focus. So we're pretty focused on our enterprise security platform for now and like helping people via an enterprise. But that's still very much in my long-term vision for the company is doing more work with local communities. And what you were saying about, you know, sometimes that data can be used against communities. We think a lot about that and how to have our data shown in the most representative way and, you know, like really being good stewards of this Mm. data, I guess you could say. And so, you know, one of the things that we found that's really interesting is that our data frequently contradicts a lot of people's perceptions about what is safe and and what's not. Hmm. And so people frequently associate, you know, certain socioeconomic status, like the the aesthetic of a neighborhood with how high the crime rate is. And in most of our cities, we find that that's actually not true. Oh, wow. And that people's perceptions of what's what's dangerous is not borne out in the data. Interesting. So are you then, this is a related question, but like, what about working with city planners and municipalities and governments and stuff and like, hey, maybe you're misinvesting or maybe you're not doing infrastructure spending correctly because you have these perceptions based on that as opposed to based on like data. Yeah. A project that I worked on when I was at MIT was correlating lighting with crime and looking at like how having not insufficient lighting and infrastructure in certain areas can, is it correlated? Is it causation? And, you know, looking at that, but partnerships and like working with local government is very much on the radar. Um, and we just brought on someone new who's going to uh, partnerships will be sort of part of their, their scope and what they're working on. So yes, awesome. it's in the works more to come. Cool. All right. You talked about the team meeting up too, and you just you mentioned, you know, hiring somebody new. So I would love to hear just from you about like, the experience of now running the company and how that's kind of changing as you're growing and able to actually get together again in person and, and that kind of stuff. Like, how have you found that and and being the executive and being in, in charge of kind of the company? I mean, I feel like the people that we have on board, they're phenomenal people and I love spending time with them. So the pandemic was difficult in that we didn't get to see each other as much, mm-hmm. but we were kind of a remote first company anyway, we're sort of split between DC and Boston. And so we already had a model of 
once a month, we'd meet up for two to three days and do a lot of whiteboarding and then let people go off and execute on the things that, you know, the strategy we decided on. So it wasn't too dramatic a shift, but I mean, I like being in charge. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's <laughs> it, like, ultimately, I really believe in this thing and I want it to exist in the world. Um, and I've managed to to convince a bunch of really smart people to come help me do that. And so like, I, I think this is the greatest job in the world. Yeah. It sounds like a good one. Probably better than, than ours. <laughs> <laughs> but, but do you foresee that remaining the case as it grows or do you, how do you think about when you're like adding to the team or the, it becomes more complex? Like how, how are you finding that transition as the chief executive? I was inspired by the Netflix model of, carefully hiring people that are, you know, good fits for the role and then giving them a lot of trust and latitude to do their own thing. And you, you sort of have to do that with remote work anyway, or else it's miserable. You know, you're just like monitoring people all the time. So, so far we've run a culture that's like, I want to really empower people that, that come work at base operations to experiment first and come back with with ideas instead of just executing on a plan that we've already determined. Mm-hmm. So I anticipate continuing that. And I, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun to build that culture and, and to bring on really smart people and just learn from what they have to say. It's neat that you've already started there because I think we hear often that's like a place people come to in time and like with maturity, but like, it's not where they start a lot of the times, especially with startups. Right. Cause I think it's, but maybe it's a benefit of the, the remote first model, but like the, a lot of startups start up very closely held, I, I feel like, and yeah. the executives like maintain a role in a lot of the decision-making process. And that can remain even till, till companies scale to like very large sizes. And I think to the detriment of those companies. Right. So that's, that's cool. Yeah. I think being a solo founder, it's really important to me to like get other voices because I don't have a co-founder where we can be like a brain trust. So I don't want to just be in my own silo um, and just telling people what to do. So like I hired people that are way smarter than I am on different things. So definitely want to, you know, empower them to make change. Yeah. Yeah. Solo founder can lead to the worst kind of group think, which is no group because it's just you in group of one, right? For sure. (laughs) Yeah. Jordan, do you have anything else you want to ask Corey here? What keeps you up at night? Ooh. That's a good one, especially for you, because you have a lot of things to choose from. I know, you like, no, yeah, like, it's not just like, oh, I hope my business succeeds. It's like, here are the problems with the world. Yeah, I mean, like, when people's livelihood depends on you, even though we're a really small team, I care a lot about the people on the team. So I want us to do well. I want everybody to, like, have a great experience. And so I think a lot about our team and the people on the team. During the pandemic, it was when travel went to zero and we had a bunch of meetings canceled, that was definitely a, like, what the hell am I doing moment? Like we've, we've got to pivot and change or this isn't going to work. So that was, I mean, that was a scary time of late nights, but I think, yeah, I mean, what, what keeps me up at night is just kind of ruminating. There's so much like startup advice out there. And a lot of it is like totally opposite you know, and so it's sort of he, he, like taking, thinking all the time about like, what is the best way to do this? Or what is the way that works for us? And I can take all this advice from our investors, from our, you know, from 
tech stars and school and all, you know, all these different places, podcasts and books, but like, what is the right path for us? And are we on, are we doing the right thing? So, I mean, just big picture, that's what keeps me up at night. No, yeah, that, that is something we hear a lot too, because it's like, you're right. You could literally go out there and find plenty of information to back up anything, any strategy you want to pursue, right? Like, but ultimately you have to be the arbiter and that's why you're in the position you're in, right? It's like, yeah, decision comes down to you. And also VCs love to give advice too, right? And they love to give advice that opposes their earlier advice. Yeah. No, I think about a lot about how there's like, you know, dichotomies where it's completely opposite. Like one I think about a lot is agility versus grit. Like everybody right. says, be agile, take in information from the market. I mean, more when you're finding product market fit, but, you know, change, adapt. And then the grit school of thought is like, hold on to your idea and like, keep going. And people might not understand it, but like, you know, the Steve Jobs theory, like yeah. people or the people would have asked for a faster horse, like Ford, you know, nonsense. Like those two are completely opposing ideas. So like puzzling through stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. They are. And they had also held by many, I would say in like the same space and with no cognitive distance whatsoever, which is <laughs> pretty hard to understand. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Great. Well, I mean, it's been awesome talking to you, Corey. Thanks very much for doing this. I had a great time talking to you the first time around. So I wanted to have you back for this. Yeah. Really appreciate yeah, thanks it. Thanks for sharing, Daryl. And I'm not scared. I feel brave and ready to go tackle, tackle the world. No, awesome. Thank you so much for having me on. It's, you know, I, I've, I've been listening to your podcast. It's really interesting to hear other people's stories. So thanks so much. Aww. You get a lot of conflicting advice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you're doing a good job of like showing how different everybody's journey is and how, you know, they have to find their own way. There's no playbook. All right. So that was our chat with Corey Siskin. And she, as Jordan said in the intro, very cool person and has lived a cool life and has led to founding a very cool company, although not one that on its surface you might think is cool at first hearing. But it is. But it is. Yeah, exactly. It's almost like a spy thriller, like a novel. It's almost like living in a spy thriller, except it's just like a bunch of data in a computer. Yeah, I kind of wanted it to be more <laughs> like spy thriller, but but yeah. still, even with the level of spy thrillery that it is, rock solid, very cool, yeah. very interesting. What's cool about it is that it is something that we all benefit from every day and that essentially like global commerce or global business doesn't work at all without these kinds of operations and especially now like things change very, very quickly, like on the ground in terms of where people are operating and where businesses are operating. So I think that something like base operations and what Corey's building is just going to get more and more relevant and more necessary for, for more companies. I think they're one of these companies. I don't know. I'm not really good at being able to tell like, oh, this one's going to be real big, but I think they're going to do very well. And then I'll just have this clip of me saying that to enjoy later on. Nothing else. I think you got a, but... nice, a nice nose for success. Yeah, just like Toucan Sam. <laughs> what? Another amazing take. <laughs> Found is hosted by myself, TechCrunch News Editor Daryl Etherington, and TechCrunch Managing Editor Jordan Crook. We are produced by Ashad Kulkarni and edited by Grace Mendenhall. TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pickovet. 
Our guest this week was Corey Siskin, co-founder and CEO of Base Operations. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and on Twitter at twitter.com slash found. You can also email us at found at techcrunch.com, and you can call us and leave us a voicemail now at 510-936-1618. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.